0: Good morning, Gary. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir.
1: Uh, I love the angel wing begonias and uh, the big leaf begonias and and I keep them in big pots. And typically, we just let nature take its course, and right. they, they freeze back and we start over. But it looks like this year they're going to make it through. So I know in the past you've said some plants that can be carried through shouldn't be because they might be they might be weakened.
0: You're a good now, listener. Having,
1: having <laughs> vigorous plants is more important to me than. Uh, than, than saving a few bucks, so there's my question can i if if they survive am I wise to carry them over and and uh, let them go uh, through another season
0: and that's an excellent question First of all, there are lots of different kinds of begonias. Uh, The most commonly grown begonias, I'm not saying the best, but the most commonly grown begonias are these little ones that we call the Semperflorans begonias that people plant, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of in, in beds. And basically, you know, there's red, there's pink, there's white, there's green leaf forms, there's bronze leaf forms. Those I do not recommend holding over. Those you probably should replace every year if you want them to last well through the summer angel wing begonias are a whole different group of begonias, and they're kind of like geraniums. They are capable of living for quite a few years. I would probably, oh, maybe the second year, I would just let them grow and enjoy them because they can easily be as pretty or prettier the second year, maybe even the third year. But I think you're wise every two or three years to take some cuttings from your existing plants and get some fresh start, so to speak because the root system of the plants the lower stem of the plants it has its own form of aging it gets its own form of hardening of the arteries and after a few years their vigor just slows down so um you know those are the first two types the semperflorens, which i do recommend replacing every year the angel wings like you're talking about that I will tell you don't don't ever you know feel like you have to replace them but every two or three years take some cuttings because except for a little not too well understood thing called telomeric reduction which is how a lot of geneticists now are thinking that things age you can perpetuate that plant virtually indefinitely and what you're doing is just every two or three years you're taking a cutting you're getting a fresh brand new root system on the plant you're going to grow it a while longer and then two, three years down the road, you're going to take another cutting. Uh, You've still got the same genetics. You've still got the same identical plant. But in effect, you're just giving it a good new root system every two or three years. Does that make sense?
1: It it sure does. And I appreciate
0: it. Well, let me me tell you one other thing. Now, you say a a large-leaf begonia, there is – well, there are three kinds we're going to talk about. There are are others. But there is another group of begonias that tends to grow – very large, very colorful leaves from a oh, an almost rhizome-like base. And these are the ones we call the Rex begonias or Iron Cross begonias. Uh, the Iron Cross is one of the more common ones, but boy, there must be a hundred different ones out there. And they don't make tall stems. They grow pretty much from the base, and they are incredibly colorful. I'll put them in the same category as uh, the cane begonias, in that they will live for you know several years and don't really need to be replaced. But with your uh, with your rex begonia types. Uh, what you do when you're ready to make a new plant, which you should do every two or three years, you actually start whole new plants from pieces of one of the big leaves. You can actually take one of the big leaves on those things and split it into maybe four or five pieces, long as you have a large central vein from that leaf on each one. And every one of those pieces of leaf will grow a whole new uh Plant for you. So the rex begonia types, I recommend just like the, uh, just like your cane begonias, your angel wing things like that. I recommend just every two or three years start some fresh ones, and we won't even go into tuberous rooted begonias and things like that because they really don't grow well here. But uh, bottom line with what you're asking, angel wing begonias will you can propagate those, maintain them for several years. If you start some new plants from cuttings every two to three years, you'll propagate and save those plants forever.
2: Okay. I appreciate
0: it. Good question. I appreciate the call. You get out and have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Gary. (laughs) Bye. All right. In addition to Clint, we now have Tom and Barbara waiting. So Clint called in first. Good morning, Clint.
3: Good morning. I'd like to get your thought on a red-gold nectarine for the divine area.
0: Okay. Um, Do you have a chilling uh, hour number on that tree?
3: That uh, did not list.
0: Okay, that's the thing you're going to need to find out. Most nectarines are fairly high chilling That's a new one on me, but they come out on they come out with you know varieties every year. If the chilling requirement is above six hundred to six fifty, I have to say no for divine because that's going to be your average chilling and if things do follow the current trend of being a little bit warmer in the winter, one of these years we may be down to five fifty to six hundred. Most nectarines are up in that 800 to even 1,000 hours of chilling, which means I'm not even going to try them in Bernie. Uh, but uh, you'll need to go online and just look for chill hours for that variety. If it's over 650, in fact, if it's much over 600, uh, I would not recommend it for your area, because I suspect you're sitting, you know, Divine is interesting. It's actually a little cooler than some areas that are, you know, even north of it. Divine is cooler than South San Antonio is, so um you can grow things for south san antonio i never go over 550 hours divine i think you can go 600 or maybe 650 but you're just going to have to get the chilling hour number on that tree to know uh, whether it's likely to do well for you virtually all of the nectarines and peaches are going to be grafted on the same root stock which is something called nemogard and that's no issue at all that you know the tree will grow fine for you but unless it's uh, one of these varieties is not over 600 650 on chilling it won't bloom or set fruit consistently. Make sense?
3: Oh yeah, yes sir it does. Now if that doesn't work out what variety do you recommend for the divine
0: there are not really many nectarines that uh you know that do well. I don't really have a good choice on nectarines. In fact I've not been real successful with them in the Bernie area. Peaches I can tell you lots of but uh, I'd call Mark or Mike over at Fanix and ask if they've got any nectarines that down in that 600-hour chilling range because uh, I, I don't know of one.
3: Okay. Uh, regarding cut ants, any uh, letters, word, or ideas on how to fight them? Well,
0: you know, again, I go more by what you guys tell me than anything written because none of the nobody publishing much has uh, a lot of information against them. Uh, the uh, again, you're in little sandier soil, so it makes it a little more difficult, but still flooding the mound seems to be the most, uh, across the board, the most effective thing. And if you can put a little spinosad in with uh, the water as you're flooding that mound, that seems to be a doing a better job of eliminating the mound. There are lots of things you can do that will knock the mound back, everything from orange oil, the diatomaceous earth around the entrances. But the people who feel like they have completely kill the mound out for the most part have been flooding it and then adding a little bit of spinosad to the water at least uh uh, maybe you know put your first several gallons of water in you just flood it and then go back and uh, flood it with some spinosad water and that seems to be giving a more consistent kill not every time but uh um, you know with a try or two it does seem to consistently get rid of
3: how much
0: spinosad would you recommend? I'd use it at the rate of about two ounces per gallon. Two
3: ounces per gallon. Yeah,
0: that's that's a little bit higher. Uh, most uses and most uh, brands of spinosad we use about an ounce per gallon. But as you well know, those uh, leaf cutters are probably the toughest hand in the book to get rid of and that's why i'm going to up to about two ounces per gallon but like i say if you do your main flooding with just plain water you're not going to have to make up more than a gallon or two of the spinosad water and uh, that way you're not going to be using uh, you know too many dollars worth spinosad to get them under
3: okay now on a couple of younger mounds that just uh trying to get established i tried a couple of different things and it seemed, seemed to work on on Young Mound, but uh, I got my little bro- propane brush brush burner, screwed the top off, and and sat there and filled that hole full of propane.
0: <laughs> I know. I hope you're not a smoker. I don't think you are. <laughs> that's no, the only. Like oh, yeah, that's the only thing about uh, a gas. But no, there's no reason that uh, that wouldn't work. And propane's pretty innocuous it's as different. far as causing any problems in the soil.
3: It's heavier than air, so exactly. it's going to uh, come right back out. So that seemed to work pretty good. And then I had another one in kind of got me mad. So I went and found some of the meanest fire ants I had and <laughs> got a shovel and dumped it around them. And uh, uh, they didn't seem to like that, and I hadn't seen them since. So I want to uh, toss some fire ants on some of the bigger mounds I'm going to try.
0: I will look forward to hearing about that. That is one of the most unique ideas I have heard and uh sounds like pretty darn good idea to me keep me posted on how that one does for you
3: will do i appreciate the time
0: always appreciate the call you have a great great weekend clint good to talk to you
3: Take care.
0: thank you sir bye. Right. bye all right it's gonna to be tom barbara and sid and tom's next good morning tom
4: good morning good morning sir uh, i have a larger piece of property and i want to get rid of a couple of oleanders uh, one's quite large and uh I just wanted to know what's the safe way to safest way to dispose of one, and uh, and I do have a shredder; I can shred them. Mm -hmm. And the other, and the other is um, what's a good replacement plant?
0: Okay, well, first of all, in getting rid of them, uh, they don't have a real extensive root system. uh, And what I would do with that kind of plant, I would you know first go through with my pruning shears and. You know, cut it down to maybe six inches high, just enough to be able to get hold of that base. And then I just simply go around it with the grub and hoe. It'll be about five minutes work, but uh, not a real big job for a guy, you know, that can swing a grub and hoe. And uh, the roots just aren't that woody. The base of the plant isn't that big and uh, I don't think you need to get a stump grinder or anything like that. So I just, I can cut it down six inches tall and then just go after it with a grubbing hoe. As far as how to dispose of it, um, I, you know, I don't even mind putting it in the compost pile. Running it through your, your chipper shredder is going to be a fine idea. Um, if your chipper's like ours, it makes a pretty good-sized chunk. I don't want to see... You know, I don't want to see it turning to anything that you're likely to inhale. don't want to, if you've got any dry or dead pieces, those I probably would not run through a shredder because I don't want to cut it down to the point that it's, you know, floating through the air and things like that. But it decomposes as it breaks down. Physically, you're also going to degrade the uh, chemical uh, toxicity part of it that's in there it's it's toxic, but you know it's it's one of these things kind of like uh, the true you not the Japanese you but the true northern you um it's it's toxic but it's controllable they're actually looking at uh, some new cancer treatments with the uh the active ingredient in the sap called the oleanderin so while you don't want to breathe it you don't want to eat it uh, I just you know um it basically compost it if you want to keep it separate from your other compostable materials you're putting in the vegetable garden and things that that might be a good idea but just put it out there and let it break down i would definitely not burn it because the smoke is quite toxic but uh it's going to rot away just like everything else the smaller you can chip it up the better the faster it will rot but uh, again if it's If it's green material, yeah, run it through the chipper. If it's dry material, this is going to be reduced to very fine particles. No, I wouldn't ship it. I'd just cut it as, you know, physically with your shears or whatever, cut it into the smallest pieces you can
4: and uh, compost it, let it rot away. Okay. And what would be a good replacement plant to give that kind of big, you know, view-blocking capability? Because one of them is it's easily Almost twenty feet tall, twenty feet wide. It's a big plant. Okay, so you would like something evergreen,
0: and um, if and possible. yeah. And uh, what um, what would you consider an ideal height? Do you want it to grow up to twenty feet, or is uh, six or eight feet enough to do the job you're looking at?
4: Uh, the bigger would be better. We it is like I said, we have a, a larger pe- uh area that we'd like to cover.
0: Okay, and uh, do you have uh, adequate water supply that you can
4: water something regularly? If needed be, I could. I'd rather not, but uh, I'd I'd eventually like it to take care of itself. Okay, well, my my
0: fastest growing choice for you is going to be xylosma, X-Y-L-O-S-M-A, Uh xylosma is fast growing. It'll make twenty feet easily and it'll do that in a relatively short order. If you want to prune it, you can keep the size down. If you want to make it a little bit more narrow, you can prune it to be a fairly narrow upright hedge. If you just let it grow, uh it's gonna be probably fifteen feet wide and twenty feet tall within a very few years. And so that's gonna be that's gonna be the one that is gonna come. Oh, probably closest uh, to being self-sufficient that is fairly fast-growing as well. Um, The other choice that I was going to mention was loquat. And loquat is also very fast-growing, but it never outgrows its need for occasional water. I mean... I probably seven, eight years out of 10, you're not going to have to water during the summer months. But when we get a really, really dry summer, yeah, loquat is going to get thirsty. It's going to droop and not do as well. So, uh, just as fast growing, just as reliable, just as dense, but uh, loquat would be, um, you know, would be something that, uh, would, would give you a lot of coverage in a hurry, just like the xylosima will. Third possibility, which long term may be the very best, but you're probably not patient enough for it, is a you know, one of the better varieties of your standard Yopon holly. And my favorite has to be happens to be one called Pride of Houston. Pride of Houston is a dense, upright evergreen. Uh, small-leaved holly, it does not mine our soils here. The female plants, which is just about all that are produced these days, give you a beautiful, you know, red berry in the winter months. But it's slow compared to the others. Your loquat, your uh, xylosma some of those things are capable of putting on three, four feet of growth a year. Uh, yopon, you're probably going to be looking at 12 to 18 inches of growth. So um, long-term Probably the toughest, best deer-resistant, drought-resistant, probably the overall best plant, but it's going to take, uh, oh, you know, six, eight years for it to get up to the size that a low-quarter zylosma is going to attain in two or three years.
4: Okay. Well, thank you very much,
0: Bob. I will tell you, uh, if if you're ever, you know, in our neighborhood on Sunset Road, the building that's just to the east of us, a little strip center in there, it's got a gym right on the front. Uh the giant shrub <laughs> small tree giant shrub right directly in front of the building, that is a big xylosima. If you want to see one that's been in for golly, how long has that center been there? I think they replanted that maybe seven or eight years ago, but you can see how big it gets, how very, very quickly. If you happen to come in uh, our nursery, which is Shades of Green, we have one of those standard Joe hollies we actually pruned into a tree that's kind of halfway back on the um, western side of the nursery. Just come walk through and take a look at that because it's a beautiful tree, but it's probably taking it. Oh, 15, 18 years to get up to that size. So, th- those are two places that I will tell you you can see those two plants for sure. Loquats are a dime a dozen throughout <laughs> North San Antonio. And you can see big ones of those almost anywhere you look. All right. Well, thanks again. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. And goodbye. All right. Let's get uh, Barbara in here before the break, and then we'll see if we can get Sid in too. Good morning, Barbara.
5: Uh, you said two things about watering. Um, one is if you're gonna water, if you're gonna fertilize, don't water. I, I have that backwards. Uh,
0: and and you,
5: you better be watering if you fertilize. How now? If I'm here two months and I fertilize the trees, mm-hmm. they get water while I'm here, but they don't get a thing when I'm gone. Okay, um,
0: you know. Fertilizing is a good thing where you're using organic fertilizers and it helps the plants to in effect, grow a wider root system and a bigger root system, but when the more foliage that you encourage a plant to put on, um, the more water it's going to use long term because the leaves, you know, transpire moisture out through the leaves. So the bigger the plant you have, the more water it's going to use. Where you are Feeding with an organic fertilizer, I don't think that's a big concern because it's going to put on sort of a you know slow sustained growth, and it's not the top's not going to outgrow the ability of the root system to support it. So I'm really not that concerned we're using organic fertilizer. But people who use these synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, they will make the plants much more water dependent long run and um which is not a good thing the only thing that you have to be careful of is you know don't get that plant fertilizer or not there don't get that plant so used to having you know barbara watered on such a regular basis because then it won't grow as expansive a root system but where you're dealing with organic fertilizers i don't feel like they're going to make your plants any more water dependent uh than uh, you know than they would without fertilizer at all but boy some of these other products out there with the synthetic nitrogen. And <laughs> you know which ones I'm talking about probably. We won't yeah, mention yeah. miracle Grow and Scotts and things like that by name. But uh, yeah. uh, those will create a long-term water dependence. Of course, they do a lot of other things that I don't like to the soil as well. So I, I would not be concerned. If you're staying with your organic fertilizers, uh, they're not going to change the the water requirements of your plants.
5: Uh, okay. Okay. Um.
0: So water a lot and then don't water, right? Well, water with some consistency. Water very thoroughly when you water, but then let the plants get dry, you know, an inch to two inches deep before you water again. And uh, like I say, if you're, you know, if you're doing this on a consistent basis, if you have uh, some months of the year when you can water with some regularity. Uh, you're not really causing any problems. But the person who waters year-round on a fairly heavy watering basis and then stops watering altogether, that's where you're going to create a problem. And I liken that to a big old pecan tree that I had growing along the creek on my ranch, and that creek virtually never went dry. And if it did, it was just for two or three months at a time. But uh, back in 2011, when we had the worst drought we've ever had um that tree folded up and died because the creek went dry for two years, and it had become so reliant on that water that it couldn't survive without it. Now, 200 yards away over in the field where I've got pecan trees that were not relying on that creek for water, those trees hardly missed a beat in uh, the worst drought we've ever had. They just kept right on growing, and they're beautiful today, and they were then. So you um you, you don't want to you know in effect get those plants spoiled with consistent heavy regular watering and then stop watering altogether. but on a seasonal basis if you're there watering with some regularity for you know six months of the year and then having to be out of town for a while no that's not going to bother especially our native plants and our well-adapted plants that's not a problem at all
5: thank you big that's a big help um now you said this is so hard for me to swallow. They only take up water 10 feet from the trunk.
0: No, no, no. They do not only take up water there, but they take up the majority of their water close to the trunk.
5: Thanks. Okay, next, next thing is that guy with chickens? Yeah. He, he, on cut ants? That was a good solution too. If you can have well, the
6: chicken. <laughs> that, that
0: is an excellent solution, especially if you have what they call that chicken tractor, where you move the chicken house over, yeah. you know, on top of it. But we yeah. have a lot more cut ants than we have chicken farmers out there.
5: He said, "Yeah, he said it was worked really well." Um, there's one more thing. Uh, well, yeah, I plant pinto beans for green beans. Yes, and I I did it like a week and a half ago and they still aren't up yet is it too cold in the ground to put them in i made a mistake
0: i think it's a little cold now i wouldn't give up on them i think that uh you know we we got some pretty chilly weather so i suspect those seeds may have actually germinated they just uh have had the sense not to stick their little leaves up through the soil yet. I I would want a week of really warm weather before I gave up on them. But, uh, no, I, in my opinion, you were a little bit too early, but, you know, it's seed is cheap. Sometimes you plant early and it doesn't freeze, so you have the first pinto beans on the block. But, uh, I, I would not be at all concerned at this point if you wanted to you could just take one little tiny area, you know where you planted I them and just dig up one little area and see what the beans look like. I think that they are just saying, hey, this soil's too cold. We're just gonna sit here a while before we sprout.
5: Yeah, cheap cheap is not the word for it. They're the ones I cook. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. I appreciate your show.
0: Well it's always a pleasure. You get out and have a wonderful weekend and I know we'll talk again. All right. Well, let's head up by the near hill country, Kendall. You wake up, morning, Sid.
7: Well, good morning, Bob. Uh, I know you don't think a lot about uh, the, uh, the YouTube. Uh
6: uh-huh. I do
7: watch it occasionally, and and uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, people talking about the uh, wicking tubs, and I wanted to see what your thoughts were on them.
6: Well,
0: hey. <laughs> You know, I don't it, it if you have the proper soil, um I they, you know, they will work just fine, but I just I've seen people overdo it. Occasionally you will be keeping things more moist than the plants really like, but hey, I grew up with people wicking African violets and everything else, so uh uh I I just think they're a, a pretty expensive way to go about uh, watering, and I don't, you have to check them frequently, whether you have to add more water to them or not, Uh, may or may not be um, of of great time consequence, but I, you know, they they work. People grow things just fine in them, but if I were to create an equivalent amount of space from what I have In my vegetable garden, to what you have with the self-watering containers, it would cost a small fortune. So not really opposed to them, but do realize that you need to have a soil um it can't be a real sandy soil it can't be a soil that, that drains super well because it just won't wick the water up effectively but uh because it's through what we call capillary action osmotic pressure that just kind of keeps that water coming up into the soil so I, i'm not opposed to them but i'm not convinced that they're a really cost-effective way to do it now for the person who's growing on a balcony or patio with a very limited area, yeah, it probably takes a little bit of the guesswork out and makes it a bit easier. Uh,
7: What would you recommend to put in them? Now, uh, can you just uh, grow tomatoes and stuff in straight compost, or do you have to mix some other stuff with it?
0: That's a real good question, and the answer to that really depends on how far broken down your compost is because compost breaks down to form what I would call just a really, really rich soil. But while it's going through its decomposition, um, it's pulling a lot of nitrogen out of the air. It would happily take it away from the, you know, nutrients you put into the soil to complete the breakdown. And in the early stages of decomposition, as you well know, there's a lot of heat produced uh, where it pretty much sterilizes uh things as it goes as far as a lot of diseases and things like that. So, If your compost is fully broken down, I think it's one of the richest planting mediums you would ever plant in, and uh, I don't think you really need to add anything else. You've probably heard me tell the story before. It's been several years now, but had the pleasure of uh, going to Switzerland and... (laughs) and seeing a bit of that beautiful country. And I think the healthiest squash I have ever seen in my life was growing on uh, up there. They raised their barns. They set them up on rocks uh, and things. I think they call them saddle stones or something like that. But uh the back end of one barn where they just, you know, swept the manure out and it just made this ever-growing pile underneath, growing in the middle of that was probably the healthiest squash I have ever seen in my entire life. And it was in growing in just, you know, totally pure compost and manure. So, no, I, if, your, if your compost is fully finished, um, you could grow in straight compost. If you have that much compost, I envy you.
7: Uh, well, i'd have to buy it i think
0: <laughs> well and i can promise you no compost that you buy is going to be ready to plant in it's going to have to age some you're going to have to mix any purchase compost with some soil just to cool it off a little bit i used to fuss at old malcolm beck and uh you know Malcolm was such a—he's just such an honest uh, man, kind of like my friend Alton Graham. I don't think he could have told a lie if he tried to. But sometimes he—sometimes we did not always see the same results. In fact, he once told me he hired a former extension agent to evaluate his trials. But uh, uh, he said because people tell me I sometimes get the results I expect to see. But that's beside the point. But I—I uh, I was fussing at Malcolm one time because I thought he was selling his compost before it was really ready, and he said to me, he said, Bob, I have to. He said, because as it breaks down, it shrinks in volume, and he says, if I let it go to full maturity, it's going to be half the volume, and people wouldn't pay the price I'd have to charge for it, and I think that's the reason that most of the compost you see out there." Uh just is not really finished compost, and it, if left to sit there, it would probably take another year at least for it to really become truly finished compost. So, in Sid's compost pile in the backyard, yeah, I think you could produce a compost that would be ready to use as is, but if you're going out and buying compost, including the ones I recommend, the best compost around, it's not going to be finished compost, and it's going to have to sit a while before I would even think about planting directly into it. Makes sense.
7: Yes, sir. Now another thing uh, in these wicking tubs that I've been looking at, some of them uh, say to to let the the soil or potting soil, whatever you use in it, go all the way to the bottom and the center and around some of the bottles and stuff that you put in there, and then others say that uh, it's it's best to put uh gravel in the bottom what are your thoughts on that
0: well you know in order for wicking for capillary action uptake of the water to occur the soil has to come in contact with the water now the old wicking pots they used to use and you can't use nylon you can't use anything synthetic but an old cotton rope or they actually, kind of like you, um, you've probably seen, you, you've you been on this earth a few years like I have, you've probably seen those thin cotton wicks they use in oil lamps and things like that, kerosene lanterns and such, and something like that, you know, you can, you can put the end of that cotton wick down in a jar of water, and pretty soon that whole thing will be, you know, totally saturated, and as a matter of fact, if you have that, wick lying out on the table next to your container all of a sudden you'll have a puddle of water you know start forming around the end of it so the old wicking pots the water was actually never in contact with the soil but they used something like cotton ropes to wick the water up into the pot and uh, people gosh i you know, growing up, that's how everybody grew African violets. They put a big, you know, piece of uh, cotton string or whatever in the bottom of the pot and, you know, just extended that down into the water reservoir underneath the plant. So um, if you're doing something like that, the water would not have to come in contact with the soil. And if you want, if I were going to put rocks in the bottom of a container like that, I would go ahead and do that. And then I would put, you know, several pieces of like a whipping wicking fabric, whether it's cotton rope or something similar to that, and I would raise them as I gradually f- fill the container with soil, so that you know you would have that moisture wicked up into the soil surrounding the cotton, so to speak. Uh, and it, that's what I would do if I were putting rocks in the bottom. If I were, you know, just putting it in, in fact, a a water reservoir. Uh, you could fill with soil all the way to the bottom. But you you never want any, you want your soil, in effect, to be in contact with the moisture, but you don't want your soil to stay soggy, soggy, wet, because it, where that soil gets really waterlogged, uh, you're going to develop an anaerobic condition. You're not going to have any oxygen in the soil. You're going to have some um rotting shall we say most of the really bad uh disease causing organisms out there and we're talking about um you know not things you get in your soil but tetanus and botulism things like that uh um oh what's the uh uh the the intestinal disease people get um anyway those are all Bad things that occur in anaerobic conditions. And the same thing is true of a lot of the diseases of plants. Those things develop where there's inadequate oxygen and where the soil stays too wet it's not the it's not that the water kills anything it's the water drives the oxygen out, and uh, it, lack of oxygen is what's going to cause problems both because plants' roots need oxygen and because that anaerobic condition leads to the formation of some things that are pretty nasty down there so um you 're almost going to have to visually at least create a cross section of what your wicking pot is going to be, and you 're going to have to feel figure out how you 're going to get the water from your reservoir to begin making its way up through the soil in your pot because you can 't simply have the bottom three inches of your soil you know in a you know in a layer of water or it 's going to turn into a very unhealthy and probably pretty stinky condition so um there's there's a a bit of science in there, a bit of engineering goes in to create an effective wicking system. Am I making sense? Does that make sense to you?
6: Uh,
7: yes. No, definitely. Uh, that was one of the reasons that they were saying to put the rocks in. Yeah. To, and and they said to to drill the hole a little bit below where the top of the rocks came up to.
6: Uh-huh.
7: They said that that would allow a little bit of air to get in there. Now,
0: <laughs> it lets the water get out too, though. That defeats the well, purpose. Yeah,
7: that was the the idea that uh, the the water would run out, and that there would be a space in there where water, where air would collect. Mm-hmm. And you now, know, that doesn't totally make a lot of sense to me, but uh, it's an idea that they're that they're talking about. And uh, I don't know if, uh, in All fact, right. one of the things they would say to do is to, to use bottles in there, drill a hole in a, towards the top of the bottle and a hole down at the bottom of the bottle, and uh, put your hole in the side of the tub a little, about an inch or so below the top of the, of the bottle. And that uh, top in the bottle was where the air was supposed to collect
0: well remember that the either the roots for the soil or some sort of wicking fabric or rope or whatever is going to have to be there to form a conduit for the water to move from the water reservoir up into the soil and you know eventually i guess your plants will get their roots down and realize that plants you know, can then grow roots down into the water because the plants have the capability of forming a different type of root uh, that will exist in an anaerobic condition. It it gets oxygen from other roots that are out of that. So ultimately, I can see where your system would get your roots down into the actual water reservoir down there. Now, what's going to happen when you pull up this season's crop and go to plant next season's crop you get got an awful lot of dead and decaying material down there in the bottom that I'm not sure is a real good thing. So,
7: Yeah, that's what my thoughts were, too.
0: Yeah, I, uh, again, you know, I, I just don't see. Now, for a person, you know, who travels for two weeks at a time and has to have, you know, some sort of automatic system to water their plants, maybe it's a good solution. I find a couple of solenoid valves and a timer accomplish that for me when I'm off at a gift market or whatever else, but uh, uh, it, uh, the other thing is I always tell people is, you know, if it were that easy and that good, everybody would be doing it, and like I say, it's you don't see it done real widely because it comes with its own set of problems as well as providing its own unique benefits, so um, if you want to do some experimenting, I am all for that. But just understand the principle of wicking, and that is you have to have some way, some conduit for that water to move from your water reservoir up into the soil, and either the soil has to come directly in contact with it, or you know, if if I were going to do the gravel system like you're talking about, uh, I would, I'd have me some big old chunks of cotton rope, you know, that were down in the very bottom. At the bottom of that layer of gravel, so that I'm going to have something wicking the moisture up into the soil, and I don't know any reason that that wouldn't work fine. That's more time and trouble that I'm that I'm going to go to, but it may work in some situations.
7: Okay. Now I got two more questions, and I'm sorry to take up so much time, but uh, how important it is it to rotate your tomatoes?
0: I don't think it's important at all. I think if you're growing in an organic, healthy situation, I grow my tomatoes in the same spot year after year. I see no increase in early blight or any insect problem from doing that. I I just uh, um, because I am supplementing, you know, part of crop rotation. Uh, was based in the early days on depleting the soil of nutrients and then planting a crop that would, you know, rebuild those nutrients. That's why they went from corn to beans to corn to beans and all. Um, So we've eliminated that problem uh, because we do have ways of supplementing the nutrients without any problem. The other thing is the question of diseases that may build up in the soil I like using a little bit of cornmeal in the soil which seems to work against every fungal disease out there through this process that we now know is systemic acquired resistance so long answer to a short question I don't rotate and I grow very good tomatoes so maybe some people have a little better results if they do but I feel like if you're working to maintain good healthy soil I see no reason to rotate them
7: okay Now, my next question is about onions. Uh, I planted onions in December, and uh, there's some of them that just aren't looking very good at all, and it's the red onions. Uh, Is it more difficult to grow the red onions?
0: They're slower to become established. Uh, They're very definitely slower to become established, and they... Uh, they are a little slower to grow, which long-term is why they have better keeping qualities than the yellow onions. So if they're truly unhealthy, um, then you may need to take a look at what's causing that. If they are just not as vigorous as your super sweets and things like that, I think you're just looking at the nature of the beast. They just take longer to grow and produce and uh um you know, I, I plant those mixed bundles we can get these days. And the reds are the slowest, the yellows, or the whites are the second slowest. And those yellow, especially the super sweets, they take off like gangbusters. So I'm not sure you're looking at a problem. I think you're just looking at plants that uh, are slower to become established.
7: Well, I've got uh, quite a few of them that just totally disappeared. And now I'm wondering what... What does, uh, is there something that eats them? Did the pill bugs eat them?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
7: And I did put out some Sluggo. I have only done it once.
0: Now, did you put out Sluggo or Sluggo Plus?
7: The the Sluggo Plus.
0: Okay, that's what it, because this regular Sluggo does nothing against pill bugs. Sluggo Plus will get the pill bugs as well. Um, I probably, where I've got an issue with pill bugs, I put that Sluggo Plus out once a week.
7: I just need to do that more than I only did it once, and yep. I thought maybe that would take care of them.
0: Well, it depends on how many pill bugs you have, and if, because it is a bait and because it may be drawing them from some distance away, um, I, for me it's usually multiple applications, and I suspect for you as well.
7: Okay. All right. Now, the one bed where I do plant the tomatoes is last year I did didn't do very well with the tomatoes, and I was even growing the juliettes, I did get quite a few, but not like I've done in the past.
0: Well, last year we had some weather issues. Be sure that you do work a little bit of cornmeal in when you plant, and you may simply need to, you know, increase your fertilizing. The, the weather, we went from cold to very hot very quickly and a lot of tomatoes just didn't produce as well i probably have the worst tomatoes i've had in 10 years last year so i'm not going to judge too much on how things did but i would definitely i'll be putting more cornmeal in the ground this year just to take care of any problems especially since we've learned so much about this systemic acquired resistance but uh i would up your fertilizing i'd use your cornmeal and i'd hope for better weather
7: okay and one last question Uh, I've heard about uh, the sea mineral. Supposedly it's uh, evaporated uh, seawater that has a lot of minerals in it. Uh Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
0: In pots, I would never use it. In the ground, I would use it sparingly. The best that I know of that's at a reasonable price is called Redmond, R-E-D-M-O-N-D, Redmond Sea Salt. And uh, it's used principally as a cattle supplement, but uh, it's as good as any of these uh, lightweight salts they recommend for gardening. But don't overdo it. It does have a fair amount of sodium in it, and it can burn if you overdo it. But there's no doubt that, uh, you know, that, that seawater contains many, many different nutrients, but we get the same benefit with liquid seaweed without the, potential buildup of salt so again experiment with it i would not go out and pay somebody you know a high dollar price for it uh, and i use the redmond salt occasionally but not real heavily but i think just old redmond cattle supplement salt is uh going to be as good as anything you'll buy
7: well when i googled it i noticed that one of the things that came up was the uh, the growing Green. So apparently it has a little
6: bit of that in it too.
0: I'll ask Stewart about that next time I talk to him. But he puts a lot of things in there. The only things other than active ingredients that he has to list on the bag, uh, I mean that he has in anything that he lists on the bag, he has to prove various things, and it becomes a very expensive process. But Stewart adds a lot of beneficial things into his mixes that are not on the bag simply because it doesn't cost him as much to get his label approved, and uh, he's not using anything toxic to do that, but I would not be at all surprised if he adds a little bit of that to his blend, and I talk to him pretty often, uh, so uh, I'll ask him that next time I talk to him.
7: Very good. Well, I really appreciate your show.
0: Well, Thanks. I appreciate the thoughtful question, Sid, you call anytime, and uh, you have a good weekend in Candalia. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. We start with Diane. Good morning, Diane.
8: I'm in Seguin, Bob.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you're in Seguin, and then uh, Geronimo, who just dropped off, was in, I didn't even <laughs> see where, but <laughs> how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? Just fantastic. I was in Seattle all week. Got, got off that plane yesterday afternoon, very thankful for Alaska's nonstop flight, and uh, I think we almost saw the sun for the first time in about uh, the five days we were up there. So it was a good trip. Saw some really interesting things. Talked to a lot of very interesting people, but very glad to be back in San Antonio.
8: Well, we're glad to have you back. So here's my question. I Last year and then about two, year, two years before that, so it was like every other year, I had a massive outbreak of fleas in my courtyard, which has uh, brick pavers, Mm -hmm. which seemed to be where they came from the most. The periphery has some landscaping, like there's a big oak tree on the edge, and then there's, you know, a little bit of landscaping, and it's not a huge courtyard. But if you stood out on the bricks to water the container, you were covered with fleas, not to mention the cat.
6: Mm -hmm.
8: So, unfortunately, desperate times called for desperate measures. So this year, I would like to do a preemptive strike. Can I use the beneficial nematodes in that area? Of course, spray it where the the landscaping is, but also in the brick pavers and get into those grooves.
0: And so the bricks have no, they're not cement stabilized. They don't have any mortar or anything like that. Correct. Then they would be just fine there. What you're going to have to do um, is either, you know, apply your solution very slowly or, you know, what I would probably do is, you know, if the, I would first of all do all your beds, all your pots, things like that, because the nematodes have to have some moisture to survive and they have to have some moisture to get into the soil on that brick area, and this may sound a little weird, I probably would put the nematodes out, and then I would turn the sprinkler on, you know, just on the end of the hose and let it run, let it, in effect, water the patio for an hour or two afterwards just to be sure those nematodes are able to get from a dry spot on a brick to a moist spot down in the sand or whatever between the bricks. But um I you see what i'm saying if you just spray them out and leave them alone 80 percent yeah i think that would work just fine and i think it would be a would be a good thing to do now recognize that um you know the the bad problem with the nematodes they probably got a small start and then really became established there i'm not sure that there are any overwintering forms, although I guess there could be, you know, live fleas could have burrowed down in there. They tend more to go for wood piles or areas of detritus and things, but uh, um, you you don't have anything to lose, but if I were doing it as a preemptive strike, I probably would do it twice, about 60 days apart, just to be sure you've got the nematodes down there while the fleas are trying to get started.
9: Okay,
8: so is it too early if I put them out this weekend and then two months from now? I know you're not a weatherman and all, but, but I mean we haven't had that much cold, and we've
0: started getting some moisture, which is pretty much ideal for fleas. I, you know, that,
8: how much does it cost for one of the smaller packs?
0: About fifteen bucks.
8: Okay, so That's, it's not a horrible investment. Oh, no, no,
0: no. I, if it were me, if I fought that problem, I would do it. I would very definitely do it now and do it again in a couple of months. But um, whether you could wait a little while, whether you should have done it a month ago, I, there's just really no way of knowing. But we are, what I always say about February, it is a month where we're going to get some nasty weather, but we're probably going to have more nice days than we do bad days. So I think it's probably time to make that uh preemptive strike, as you put it. I think it'd be a real good thing, but I would follow it up 60 days from now and do the same thing again.
8: So I'm going to put them in the pump-up sprayer, and then I was just going to kind of direct it into the the joints of the bricks, then put the sprinkler over that.
0: You can do that if you like. I think you're doing it a little bit more uh, intensively than you need to. I probably would be doing it with a watering can And not worrying about, uh, you know, I just always pump up spray. I always worry about some of them getting clogged up in that nozzle going through. I would be more likely to, uh, you know, use them in a little bit more liquid, which will go about 20 times faster. And just be sure you follow up immediately with the sprinkler.
8: Okay, perfect. Well, then I'll see you all this morning.
0: We will look forward to seeing you, Diane. And you have a a good morning in the meantime.
8: You too, Bob.
10: Bye-bye.
0: Goodbye. Good morning, Joe
10: hey i hope i'm not asking you to go over already plowed ground i just staggered in with my cup of coffee and heard well sometimes you
0: need to double dig the soils (laughs) let's find out
10: (laughs) (laughs) well for the first time today i'm going to do my whole property with nematodes okay so um i got maybe a couple of dumb questions but um what about technique? I mean, I've got a backpack sprayer. It's about three or four gallons. Do uh-huh. you recommend just uh, putting them all in the tank at once and trying to make the whole property? Oh, or?
0: no, no, no. I would, I would be diluting it down. I would figure working at a comfortable pace, how many times are you going to have to refill that sprayer? Let's say you figure it would take four fillings. Well, take yourself a bucket of any size, but, you know... Um, and put your nematodes in there and just put a fourth of the bucket in, fill it up, go spray, do another fourth, another fourth, another fourth. But you've got to, you know, you you can't go off and have a drink in between times because nematodes will drown if they stay in the water for too long. But, no, I would be I would be dividing it up. And be real certain, Joe, that your backpack sprayer doesn't have a filter or anything that would interfere with their coming out. I'll tell you, it would probably be a lot faster and easier with a hose in sprayer, but you do whatever works for you.
10: Well, uh, I'm not sure I have a hose in sprayer. I don't mind going and getting one.
0: Um, Well, if your back sprayer is fine, so long as, like I say, so long as it doesn't have a filter and, you know, that little nozzle on the end of the wand, you need to open that up to where it's a fairly good flow. You cannot have a fine mist or it'll simply be too small an open for the nematodes to get through.
10: Okay. Um, all right. Um, and also, I get, hey, I think I'm going to have to go over to Chicken Paradise and borrow a couple of chickens. I got some sticky weed in my yard. Uh-huh. There's nothing better than chickens. For those You're <laughs> right about that. <laughs> okay. All right, well, that's all I got this morning. I appreciate your advice.
0: Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you. You have a good day, and uh, I know we'll talk again. And now it's Michelle's turn. Good morning, Michelle.
5: Good morning, Bob. How are you?
0: I'm great, thank you. How about you?
5: I'm doing pretty good. i uh, got a couple of questions, and I'm hope, hoping you can help me out. Okay. Um, I live in Eagle Pass, and we've planted several palms down there.
6: Mm-hmm. And
5: because of where I live there's a lot of wind. So even though we've had just a couple of cold, cold spells, uh, cold days, I should say, um, that was enough to, it looks like it killed back some clean palms. Okay. Um, does that does the wind and the cold just with a couple of days just burn the leaves and then the, it, it, they grow back?
0: Well, it... It
5: seems like I made such a big investment and... Um, Yeah, I've got nothing. (laughs)
0: Well, the wind dehydrates, wind doesn't kill. Cold kills, wind dehydrates. And if, um, you know, if the issue is indeed dehydration, they should regrow. But queen palm is not real hardy. And if that little central point up in the top freezes, that's the only living part of the palm. So uh, very much cold. Uh, Eagle Pass, I don't know your climate, you know, real, real well, but I never recommend Queen Palm for San Antonio because if not the first year, by the second or third year, we're going to have enough cold weather that it's probably going to kill them. And because they are a tall palm, it's not really practical to try to cover and protect. So when did you plant these?
6: Um,
5: probably about three, four months ago.
0: Okay, uh, palms now, we always plant them in the hottest part of the year. Uh, were they container-grown plants or were they bald and burlapped?
5: No, they were a container.
0: Okay, well, that's that's a good thing. But if you plant any more palms, do it, you know, July, August, because they only grow roots when the soil is really, really warm. And um, when you plant them real late or when you plant them into the fall, they have very little time to get established because they're not going to grow any more roots until, you know, the following late spring or summer. And wind can be more damaging physically to them. So. Uh, if you plant more, let's get them planted earlier. But as far as survivability, we're just going to have to watch and see. The wind itself right. can dehydrate and can make them look really bad. But the question right. is, does that little, small bud of tissue that's you know up there where the leaves originate did that freeze if it froze
5: that, it's still green thank yeah. god it's still green and
0: if you were to grab one of the new fronds coming out and lift up up on it is it firmly attached or does it pull away readily from underneath
5: it seems like they're still on there pretty good
0: then i don't think you have anything to worry about this time around but just be aware that when we get that less common super cold time you may have issues. There are some other palms that I would recommend to you much more highly yeah, including things like some of the Washingtonias that I don't recommend in San Antonio, but should do fine in Eagle Pass. In addition, there are the uh, so-called Mediterranean fan palms. If you want a palm that's taller, you can plant the Washingtonia. You want some in, in between? You can plant balls. Those are all hardy enough. I would. I'd still recommend planting them in the heat, but you'll never have to worry about mold right. with them.
5: And and that was my other question: what what you'd recommend? As far as a cold hardy, but something that doesn't grow extremely tall. I'm would, just not crazy about those Mexican fan palms. It's just one sure, big sure. stick with five. five
0: <laughs> palm leaves. Amen. You're probably going to be happiest with what we call the Mediterranean fan palm, botanically Chamaerops humilis, if I remember it right. But ask for a med palm or Mediterranean fan palm, and you're gonna. You're going to get a beautiful multi trunk palm that's going to be cold hardy down to 12 to 15 degrees, which should handle you an Eagle Pass.
5: Perfect. Okay. Well, I appreciate your help. Thank you so much.
0: Always here for you, Michelle. Have a great weekend.
5: All right. You
11: too. bye Thank you. Bye.
0: Alfred is first. Good morning, Alfred.
11: Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. All right. I'm all caffeinated and ready for some uh, questions for you. All right. All right. I have um, some roses. And it's two to like a two-level thing. Okay. I had a rose in ground in my front yard, and it had black dot all over it for a few years. And I've been corn mealing and soaking it, and, and okay, you know. And I finally got it cleared up. And I had some roses in pot. I kept them on concrete all summer long. They were beautiful and blooming. I put them in the grass to get some rainwater. Uh huh. And now they're full of black dots.
0: Okay, has nothing to do with the fact that you put them in the grass. The fungus that causes those black spots is, appropriately enough, called black spot fungus. And the spores float through the air and oh. and when the spores land on a leaf that has a little moisture on it then that spore sprouts and grows and creates that spot so it's it's not your fault so to speak just uh we got the rain uh we got the appropriate conditions and uh the like I say the spores you know, they are a part of what makes up that so-called mold count that we hear about. So had nothing to do with what you did or didn't do. I will tell you some rose varieties are more susceptible to black spot than others. And you may want to keep some notes on your own. But uh keep up with the cornmeal. Make yourself the corn, water, tea, and spray periodically. But don't feel bad about having moved them to the grass. That had nothing to do with the appearance of the black spot.
11: Okay, how do I remedy that?
0: Uh, just with cornmeal, uh, corn water tea. Soak that uh, cornmeal in water, you know, maybe half a cup in uh, a gallon of water or a couple of tablespoons in a quart of water. Let it soak overnight and then spray with that and it will control it.
11: Okay, now changing uh, next page grubs, caterpillars, and uh, nematodes. What's, I've got, I've been. Weeding my yard, I just uh-huh. got taken over by some kind of spaghetti-looking weed, <laughs> and and, <laughs> and I've been pulling it out. It's got a little, little bitty root system.
0: Oh, yeah, so and it, it just goes all of- over the place. Yeah, it's uh, called Bed yeah. Straw. They actually used to dry it and stuff mattresses with it, believe it or not. And uh, But uh, you can mow it off. You can pull it up. You just want to get it before it goes to seed. Uh, if there's nothing else in the area, you could always spray with vinegar and orange oil. But I just get out there with a rake and just go through and out of the ground and into the compost pile with it. But, yeah, it's very common yeah. this
11: time of year. Okay, that's what I've been doing. And then... I'm attacking all the milkweed and, and um, some other weeds with little yellow flowers and
0: mm-hmm.
11: the ones with a little ball that puffs and let throws all that seed out.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a dandelion to me.
11: Let me yeah, I don't know what it is. Let
0: me ask you a couple of questions. What is your basic grass? Is it Bermuda or St. Augustine? What's your background grass, so to speak?
11: By the, the weeds... Are coming out in the St. Augustine, okay, and in the Bermuda areas where that that uh, spaghetti one is taken over, uh-huh. and, uh huh. And you know when I yank it out, when I rake it, that that spaghetti one you were talking about, yeah, it, it's beautiful grass under it,
0: yeah, yeah.
11: That's green; it's not dead. Yeah, and, well,
0: it didn't even die back for the winter. Yeah, I again, you can mow it off, you can rake it out, whatever works for you, just. Just get it knocked down before it starts making seed, because every one of those plants will make hundreds of seed, and uh, they just lie there. You don't even know they're there till next spring when all this starts up again.
11: Yeah, okay. Yeah, it just sort of attacked me last year, and now I'm paying for it. Um, now, the weeds are in St. Augustine that is brown. Okay. I've got a lot of green Augustine, but I've got this whole section of my yard that's brown okay and what I have noticed is when I'm digging up the weed you know I, I get a knife down there and I so I get the root and um I I see a lot of grubs okay large grubs and caterpillars okay well like
0: yeah the the bad news is that you probably got some dead grass in there and the culprit was probably those grub worms that you're finding now but they're they're pretty much beyond their feeding stage so Um, I'll tell you just a second how to go about killing them, but the guys that did all the damage were tiny little grubs. They're called the first and second larval instars, and um, those are the ones that do all the damage. The grubs you're finding now, they're just... uh, waiting for it to warm up a little bit more so they can go out and have a little fling go lay eggs and start the process all over again so i'm not concerned that those grubs are going to cause more damage now um putting out the beneficial nematodes will kill them it will take much longer Uh, i mean the nematodes kill those little the tiny little grubs within a matter of hours the big grubs. It may take a week or two, but don't worry about the fact that you'll continue to see them because they're not continuing to eat. They're just waiting for their chance to turn into June bugs. And um, next year, or this coming year, I should say, anytime you see those June bugs appearing, that's the time you need to get the beneficial nematodes out so that you don't wind up with dead grass from the little grubs having eaten all the roots off of it. We won't really be able to tell until growth starts this next spring, how much of that grass is dead, how much of it is going to come back. The caterpillars are an incidental problem. uh, They're a nuisance, but uh, they're much more of a threat to flowers and tomatoes and some other things out there. They're not really causing that much problem at all with your grass. And if I were going to tell you, I think the most important thing you'll do this time of year is to put some fertilizer on, uh, good organic fertilizer. If it's in the budget, an application of compost would be a great idea. And beneficial nematodes, like I say, it's a little early to take care of the stage of the grub worms that does the damage. but uh, And it will help reduce the number of big grubs you've got. But you're always going to have to watch out because they will fly in from the neighbors and everywhere else. So uh, we just need to get a little ahead of the game if we have a big flight of June bugs this spring. Try to stop that damage before it starts
11: okay and next the uh my grass my dirt when i was down there you know, on my knees i noticed i have a lot of uh green kind of mold and and black dead mold a layer on top of the dirt yeah
0: and that's just it, the result of uh Our weather cycle, which has gone from very dry to suddenly having three weeks of rain. That is not a problem in any way, form, or fashion. Let's just pray that the rains keep up because that's what we need. But it's nothing you need to worry about or do anything about.
11: Okay, good. I was about ready to throw peroxide out
0: there. (laughs) No, you don't need to. Peroxide would be good on sidewalks or, you know, decks or things if you see this coming because it can be very slick. But in your yard, no. Don't don't worry about it one iota.
11: Okay. All right. Well then that that takes care of me.
0: Well, I'm glad you called and uh call me anytime I can help. All right. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh next up is James. Let me hit the right button there. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. What? How are you doing? Yeah, man? you know, I'm just doing very, very well. Glad to be back in uh this civilized part of the world, but I sure saw some interesting things up in the Pacific Northwest this past week.
12: Yeah, that's, uh, it rains up there, you know. <laughs> you can do, you can grow what you, what you please.
0: Uh, well, as long as it doesn't take too much sunshine, because this time of year you don't have much sunshine. We we had sunshine the day we landed, and uh, all we had was rain from then on. But, man, we got out and visited a lot of good nurseries, did some gift buying, and just... Talk to a lot of people, just lots of interesting people in the nursery business. And that's what I loved about getting out and visiting with other people to see how they're doing it.
12: Well, go to the place where it rains, and you're going to find a lot of people that are growing a lot of stuff. That's for sure.
0: I mean, they have some of those nurseries. They have more of their showroom space dedicated to seed racks. I have never seen so many seed racks in my life. I think one nursery... Probably we're talking floor to ceiling seed racks. They must have had fifty feet of seed racks up there, and that's not to mention all the little packages of bulbs and tubers and things. So yeah, there there are lots of gardeners up there growing lots of stuff. But I I just uh, know that would be of interest to a gardener like you. I found some things that I didn't realize uh, that uh, now. No, Johnny's doesn't really do package seeds, but I didn't realize that Baker Creek has a whole line of packaged seed to go along with the bulk seed that they produce and uh, um they they use a lot of the same ones we do botanical interest and ernaes and some of the other good non-gmo and organic seed producers but saw some new ones up there as well
1: yeah
12: you could spend uh, spend a lot of time going through them racks looking Looking to see what's new and exciting.
0: That's right. Sure. I I think the weather's just so crappy up there most of the time. That's how they spend the winter is studying their seed catalogs and going through the seed racks, figuring out their what they're gonna what they're gonna plant when uh, spring finally does arrive.
12: That's good therapy, man. Sitting behind the fire going through your uh, your catalogs, that's good for you.
0: Uh, yes, sir. I totally agree. What's in, going on in your world today?
12: Um Let's see. We got down to 27. Yep. Uh, believe it or not, uh and those uh all those little uh tomatoes and peppers in that uh cold frame that I was telling you about just yeah. made it just fine without oh, yeah. any uh, additional heat.
0: Yeah. So, cold frames are wonderful things.
12: That's working just fine that, that insulation. Uh I went out to a friend's farm just down the road uh to pick up a load of mesquite wood uh-huh In fact, that's what i'm burning right now and right at the gate he's got a, a guy uh, a uh a yucca
6: uh-huh a
12: big yucca that's putting up some kind of what i look like a seed stock you know like a
0: oh, that's probably yucca carnero sena the one they call the graveyard dagger and it's going to be quite a mass of white blooms but you know the difference in yuccas and century plants? The yuccas bloom every year, or just about every year. The uh, agaves, they bloom one time and then they die. But I'll bet you that's what they call the graveyard dagger, and it's going to be beautiful in two, three weeks when those flowers start opening.
12: Okay, I, it's not too far down the road from me, so I was wanna, wanting to run out every uh, every Sunday and take a look at it.
6: Mm-hmm.
12: Uh, is, can we propagate that or just... You enjoy
0: it you're going to have to get some seed from it, yes, it will make seed, and it's a real interesting botanical process that we won't take the time to go through now, but no, they will make some seed pods and uh a good gardener like yourself, you can propagate them from seed. They're a little slow to get started. But uh, you're not able to take cuttings or really not practical to do root divisions or anything like that. But, yeah, keep an eye on it. You will see the seed pods will be very distinctive, and each one will have quite a few seed in it.
12: Oh, okay, because the, the farmer that owns the land wanted to uh, – he was interested in uh, getting a few more started down that fence line. Oh,
0: absolutely. I yeah.
12: told him I'd call you and find out how it worked.
0: Yeah, well, seed is the way to do it, and – the most successful way is going to get James to start you some little plants to set out there. Direct seeding into the ground, nah, probably not going to get more, much results from that. But starting your seed, as you do so many things, six months from now, you'll have a nice little plant to set out.
12: Well, then we just keep an eye on it, and then it'll uh, it'll tell us what's going on. Yeah,
0: as soon as that seed pod starts to discolor, harvest it, and... Uh, you'll find plenty of uh, medium-sized black seed in that pod.
12: Okay, well, that's uh, that's good information. That's really what, what we wanted to know. Um, we put down, when we're planting whatever, tomatoes or peppers or whatever, we put down a certain amount of compost. Right. And growing green and a few other magic powders. <laughs> and uh, take the power planter and run it up and down, you know, and right. get it all... That's yeah. uh, yummy. Uh, you're uh, you're wanting us to use uh, some uh, cornmeal, but I'm not real sure. What about a cup every, uh, every plant in place?
0: Oh, gosh. I'd say, you know, I use a handful, which is probably going to be a, a light handful. which should be less than half a cup. If I were working it into the ground of how we're doing what you're doing, I'd just, you know, like just heavy salt and pepper. is about how much i put it out. You're probably going to
12: wind it. Like a little mound of compost and growing green and different. Yeah. Yummy stuff.
6: Just just and then
12: throw run that auger right through it. Yeah. And boy, it makes a really nice planting hole.
0: Just tear us up. Uh, do it all at once. If you, my problem is, I you know try to do that ahead of time with the growing green and the compost, and then when I go back to plant my tomatoes three or four weeks later. Man, I'm cutting up earthworms. It's, I just can't dig a hole without finding 50 earthworms down underneath it. So, you know, they're really enjoying that too.
12: Yeah, I, I know what you, what you mean, especially in the hoop house. That's a, almost a worm bed in
6: there. <laughs>
12: so a, so a, a, a cup wouldn't hurt me. I could go down a row and we're doing, you know, 50 uh, or 60 in a row. Oh,
0: it wouldn't hurt you, but I think you're using four times as much as you need to. Oh,
12: okay. All right, then a half a cup. Then that'll make you. A uh, right? quarter
0: to half is all you need, James.
12: Oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. That sounds uh, sounds about right. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I had for you, Bob. And thanks uh, for taking my call and answering my
0: questions. I'll you know, it's ready. always a pleasure talking to you. I'll hope we do it again soon, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, let's see here. We're going to start with Bridget, and then it is going to be Lee and Danny and Martha. Good morning, Bridget.
5: Good morning, Bob. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. How about yourself?
5: Wonderful. Good. I have three questions for okay. you. Um, every year I have the same issues with my pomegranate tree, so I thought I'd call you. Um, um, when, I, when I pick them, they're half rotten, uh-huh. and then the other ones are... Fairly ripe. What what is that?
6: Well,
0: I think it is a water issue more than anything else. Pomegranates are very very drought tolerant, but if you want decent pomegranates, you've got to water. I mean, you've got to water them pretty regularly. I would say weekly at least, and very thoroughly and very deeply. The reason I say that is because I face the same thing you do. Now, on the rare years, we get a lot of rainfall. My pomegranates are not in an area that it's easy for me to water. But when we get fairly copious uh, summertime rains, virtually every fruit is good. Most of the time, a handful of them are good, and a lot of them are not so good and when I can manage to keep them effectively watered, uh, then I go back to having almost 100% good fruit. So I know they sit there. They don't look like they need water. The plants survive just fine without water. But pick up your watering to where you give them a pretty thorough soaking once a week, and I think you'll see an exponential increase in the number of good pomegranates you're going to pick.
5: Okay, great. Uh, second question. So last year I got the best. Most peaches I've ever gotten. So <laughs> Good, I was but every morning I came out, there'd be a lot of peaches that had one bite in them,
0: and
6: uh-huh. then the other ones
5: were like thrown across the yard. So I don't know if that's a raccoon or something. How do I stop that?
0: Well, it could be uh, if they are off the tree and on the ground. It is, uh, and it happens overnight. It's either a possum or a raccoon. If it happens during the day, it's a squirrel probably. If you have things on the tree that have a bite taken out of them, it's probably birds. My suspicion is probably um, either possums or raccoons. It's hard to say which one. And it's, you know, a possum can't jump, but a raccoon can. And because we usually prune our peach trees to where the branches are fairly low to the ground, it's really hard to keep them from getting in the tree i mean if your if your limbs are up a little higher you can put one of those collars around the tree so they can't climb up but i'm afraid my solution is just i have a live trap out pretty much all spring and i relocate a lot of possums and raccoons but i swear you know they those blasted raccoons invented the internet long before al gore thought about it (laughs) And they send out a message. When when Bridget's peaches are ripe, they notify everyone in the county, and I have seen them strip a tree overnight. So uh, get started probably by the time those peaches are the size of bigger than a grape but not quite up to golf ball size, I'd start trapping and relocating, and I think you're probably going to be amazed at how many of the blasted little varmints you have okay thank you i I right, use cattle I use cattle cubes uh they are very you know one of the other things that they they go after very easily uh is cat food, but you know I have enough kitty cats around, and I certainly would never ever want them to stay in a trap very long. so I just use uh um well, the other thing I'll use on that works very well. I'll just get some dry corn and I don't actually put it in the live trap. I put it on the ground underneath the live trap, set the trap on top of it. And they get in there, start scratching around, trying to get to that get that dry corn, or the cattle cubes, either one, and they catch themselves every time.
5: So, okay, so the, here's a stupid question. So if I put out something that smells really bad, like maybe orange oil, around the neighborhood of the trees, that's not going to keep them away? They you know,
0: sometimes the worse it smells, the more attractive it is to them. Sure. Okay. Kind of, kind of like a dog. If one of my labs, her motto, or both of them, is if you can't eat it, roll in it. And uh, <laughs> there's some pretty foul-smelling things that uh, uh, you know that a raccoon would consider perfume and walk right past. So I've not found any repellent that really works against them. And when there is a ripe peach on the other side of that barrier. Uh, no, not going to have any desirable effect at all. In fact, I sometimes think that we send them a message "Is hey, there's something they're trying to protect. Let's go find out what it is.
6: That
5: sounds about right.
0: Yeah, I've been there, okay, done that. So
5: my, last, my last question is, so my son is tired of killing my garden every single year, and mm-hmm. so he has suggested maybe this year we do a raised garden. I do mostly tomatoes and and peppers like jalapenos and things like that. So if we were to go about this project, how deep does it have to be for tomatoes? And then secondly, if you do a raised bed, is the bottom still on top of the the grass, or is it? Or is there a liner underneath? And then what mix do you use?
0: I yeah, those are excellent questions. Um, I. I and, and I have some raised beds. I've created a bunch of new raised beds. In general, the only time I'm gonna put a you know, a, a blanket of any sort on the bottom is if I've got real issues with Bermuda grass or something like that. Because given good Definitely. loose soil, you know, a, a tomato plant would put its roots five feet down into the ground. Um oh. so if you are going to you know, in effect, put a liner on the bottom of it, you're going to need to get 18 to 24 inches of soil above it. If you're just raising the sides up to improve the soil, then, you know, 6 to 10 inches is plenty. But if you're planning to put some weed block or something like that underneath it, I would say, you know, 20, 24 inches you've got to get it up because uh, that's the only way you're going to be able to keep things adequately watered is to have that much soil for them.
5: Okay, and then um, and then is there a certain type of garden mix that you would recommend? I mean, I'm not just going
0: to put You know, there is no soil that you can buy that's going to be as good as the soil that you have. If you need to buy soil, I would uh, go somewhere like Stone and Soil Depot and just get what they call their garden mix. I would add about a third extra compost to that. And I would really up the amount of organic fertilizer I use the first year or two. Uh, And once you get your soil in good shape, uh, then, you know, you have to do very little other than add some fertilizer year after year. Now, I like adding some extra things like some lava sand. I'm experimenting with some zeolite. I'm using some dry humates now on everything that I plant. Uh, Medina's really come out with a good, reasonably priced uh, dry humate. Package now, so um, just whatever whatever method you do. If you have to buy soil, just get a good garden mix. But expect that it's going to take a couple of years to really mellow that soil out.
5: Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll just probably sell the weeds again this sure. <laughs> year. <laughs> I, I, I love my garden. It's it's huge. Yeah. Um, um, so back to that last thing. Uh, so you use what, what's a kettle cube, and where, where can I buy that for the trap?
0: Um, actually, probably what I would look for is, uh, and I'll tell you exactly what I use. I go to the grocery store or the pet store and I buy a few dried ears of corn. I mean, they actually sell this for people that want to watch the squirrels eat. And I just buy that dry ear of corn and I just take my thumb and break loose a handful of uh, corn. And that's what I probably use more than anything else. Uh, any feed store is going to have cattle cubes if you want to go that way, but you're going to have to buy a forty-pound bag. And uh, I find the corn works as well, or better than those. So just just go to Wild Birds Unlimited or somewhere, get a bag of that, uh, uh, the dry corn cob, so to speak, and you'll have a three-year supply of bait.
4: Perfect.
5: Thank you so much, Bob. I so much appreciate your advice and your show. It's that always
0: my pleasure, Bridget. Always good to hear from you. Thank Thanks. you. Certainly. Bye-bye. Bye all right back to gardening and uh as i said let's see it's going to be lee and danny and martha and don so uh lee's up first good morning good morning how are you doing today uh, it's just going to be a nice day out there how about you
13: it's a great day i got questions to get you started with
0: very good let's get started
13: okay well i have uh i have raised beds which i grow in 'Cause I live out here on a rock mountain. Three I guess there's three to six inches of soil all over my yard. Well
0: you got about half a about three times as much as I do in lots of areas, so raised bed gardening's a great way to go.
13: You're right. I have the raised beds, but I would like to have a couple of peach trees. Mm-hmm. Uh do I have to if uh do I have to make a kind of a raised bed around that uh I would grow.
0: I would, but it doesn't have to be huge because those peach roots will find their way through the rocks and you know around in the existing soil. I'd create a raised bed that's maybe twenty to twenty four inches on each side. I'd raise it up about twelve inches and you'll do just fine. Now if looks aren't important to you, I had a uh old cousin who created what i would call i was born in east texas so i can tease about east texas but uh his east texas look he'd stack about three old used tires on top of each other fill them with soil and that's how he planted his peach trees and he grew pretty darn good peaches now uh he's not going to win garden of the year and you're not going to see his picture in any magazines but uh it worked just fine and uh he didn't spend much time or money creating those raised beds
13: I can tell you my wife would not appreciate that.
0: <laughs> well, he wasn't married, so there you have it.
13: <laughs> there you go. Right. And then also in my raised beds, I've had a, it's like a, oh, uh it's kind of a wild plant that it spreads kind of like clover. Okay. And uh, if you leave it there, it has a little bitty purple flowers. Yeah. You can pull it up very easy. And it's got a million little roots, but they are only about an inch or two deep. And now it's all over my yard. It's in my garden like it's never been before. Yeah.
0: It's it's called and, henbit. Uh, it's called henbit. And okay. it's, like you said, every, I mean, those flowers are tiny and the seeds are tinier, but it makes a jillion of them. And the weather has been just perfect for it this year. It's a nuisance. And your wife may not like the appearance of it. But it's not really harming anything, and if you don't have anything planted there, you can kill it pretty easily with vinegar and orange oil, but I can promise you there are a jillion seeds there they are going to sprout back up. So I just think of that as my exercise program is pulling the hen bit out of my vegetable garden. But I tell you, let it get ahead of you. It'll take a long time to really get it under control. Uh, where there's nothing planted, I, you know, I'll go through with my push-pull hoe, And I can do a Mm 30-foot row in five minutes and then just get the rake and rake it up and throw it in the compost Mm -hmm. pile. But uh, maybe it means you've got good soil or something, because I sure have plenty of it, too.
13: Well, I was going to ask you if you could put that in your compost pile Absolutely. will it germinate in in there?
0: Well, you'll you'll create enough heat in the compost pile that will pretty much uh, kill the seeds there. Now, as your compost finishes, you may have a little bit more of it sprout, but it's still the most efficient way to get rid of it that I've found.
13: Okay, good. And then another question I have, um, on the side of my house, I've got carpet grass, and whenever everything is healthy, it's probably the prettiest carpet grass in my yard. Yes, sir. But certain times of the year, it just goes, you know, dead it looks just dead and it grows in a big circle and a little smaller areas will come out dead looking and i've put cornmeal on it uh and I guess it works. It seems to take forever, but eventually it's gone.
0: Well, get ahead uh, of it. And put it comes put, back. put the cornmeal out before it starts. If it's coming back in the same place year after year, it probably is a fungus rather than grub worms. But uh, go ahead and put some of that cornmeal out, you know, maybe in February or March before it really has a chance to get started. It's always like everything else. It's easier to prevent than it is to cure.
13: Right. Then one more question. uh I planted potatoes, and uh before I did, I went to your favorite place the internet
6: and, uh
13: <laughs> on youtube and i I like to get a bunch of different ideas and then hopefully glean the the best out of it mm-hmm. uh as much as i can and this one it it was a guy that has a lot of videos on there about gardening and he said but when he has his Uh, potatoes ready to plant he was talking about the soil how important it is to have good soil Mm -hmm. and he said i always spread rock dust and azomite Mm -hmm. to to help the garden to be uh, the dirt to be very rich and everything and uh so i said well i'll go do the same thing so i went to about three nurseries and asked for rock dust And two of them said, no, we don't have it, but we have rock phosphate. That's probably the same thing.
0: No, sir. No, sir. Not the same thing.
13: probably the same or not.
0: No, it is absolutely not the same. Uh, And rock phosphate, if you dust it around on the garden, you're totally wasting your time. You've got to put your rock phosphate as a clump in the bottom of the hole because if it's mixed with soil, it's totally inactivated. If you have a big lump of it there where your plants can grow your roots down through it, it makes a big difference, but I find that's true with tomatoes but not with potatoes. Uh, When I slice my potatoes up to make the little things I'm going to plant, I will sometimes roll them in rock phosphate, but don't waste your time mixing it into the soil. Azomite is a great product. It has some micronutrients in it. It is not a fertilizer, but it also uh, helps with cation exchange. I think it's a great soil builder but it sure doesn't take the place of a good organic fertilizer.
13: Do you all carry azomite? Because I've, I've been to four places. One was a box store, but yeah. not, nobody had had the azomite.
0: We can get it for you. We don't have enough shelf space or counter space, but uh, we can get it on very short notice. Call Patrick over there and tell him you want a bag of it on Monday, and it'll be there on Tuesday um it's yeah i'm experimenting with it and i have to say i think long term it'll produce good results i haven't seen any short-term change but uh for us it's just a matter of space to display it It's, it's a good product and i mean we can have it for you uh on very short notice but i doubt that we'll have any of it on the shelf on a given day
13: well i i guess if no one uses it it's not anything that's necessary, so well, I think i 'll eliminate
0: that you know it's kind of like vitamins you don't have to take them, but if you want to if you want to improve your soil, azomite is a great thing to use. It has a large number of micronutrients in it. it just hasn't made the mainstream gardening world yet, but uh uh I look for it, I think it's going to be more and more widely used, but like I say, it doesn't produce overnight results and boy everybody wants it and wants it right now but it it is a great All addition right. to your garden i'd encourage you to try it sometime okay do you know what the rock dust is if it's i rock rock, rock, rock dust that could refer to a hundred different things uh and i you know uh no sir i <laughs> we we talk about the rock products which include azomite which include lava which include uh, um uh, the dry humate, uh, but I'd have mm-hmm. no idea what he's meaning. Uh, mm-hmm. Phil Phil Callahan wrote a book talking about the magic rock powders, but um, I don't think you're going to find anything called rock dust, and it's definitely not rock phosphate.
13: Okay, well, Bob, I appreciate your help and all of your advice. You have it's, a good day.
0: You do the same, sir. Thank you. All right, back to gardening. One of my colors dropped off, so Martha's the only one up there. Good morning, Martha.
5: Good morning. My granddaughter, who's the only one of my prodigies that happens to like to garden, is in College Station. Okay, that's an eight. And is their soil different enough from ours that she can grow things like tulips and pennies and things like that, or is it just too hot in Texas? No, for it's
0: that? it's too hot in Texas for that. Her soils are, in some ways, better than ours. Her soils have a higher salt content, though. And that can be a problem on some things, but in general, you know most everything that grows here will grow in uh in college station area uh Some of my friends over there, like Bill Welch that wrote the great book on Texas mm-hmm. perennials uh he ended up doing a lot of raised beds just to avoid the salt issues but um it's it, as far as zones no. Uh, not that much cooler over there, but they have more soil and somewhat richer soil, but anything that's sodium sensitive is going to be harder to grow over there, while things like azaleas and camellias probably going to be easier to grow.
5: Right. She'll like that. Um, what about hell spore?
0: I have never been successful. I mean, we well, I saw. Either. Yeah, I, we were in Seattle all week, up there, gift markets and visiting nurseries, and I mean, that's the most common thing they grow up there. I'll ask Howard Garrett what his experience is with it, because I think he's been doing some uh, uh, a good deal of experience with it, and we'll see what he. I've never been successful with it, but I would tell her if she wants to try, a few, go ahead, but don't go out and plant a whole forest of it. <laughs>
5: Okay. And the hen bit, I always break the little tops off when they're blooming and put them in my salad.
0: Now, there's a good that idea. That pretty. Uh, <laughs> if you can come to my garden, you'll have a lot of salad. <laughs> <laughs> my house, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but as I say every week, and you've heard over and over, don't dial right now. It's time for our interview with the Dirt Doctor. We'll have about the last 30 minutes of the show for more phone calls, but uh, just never pass up an opportunity to... Talk to someone is knowledgeable and experienced and with a broad range of experience. Good morning, Howard Garrett.
2: How's everybody today?
0: Hey, it's just uh, kind of a... I'm afraid I dragged some Seattle weather back with us. It's kind of overcast and looks a little dreary, but it's going to be a good day out there. Yeah,
2: I see 70 degrees coming up Sunday, but uh, cloudy. So
0: <laughs> And, We're of course...
2: Continuing the roller coaster.
0: Hey, we had 27 degrees in the Hill Country midweek, so it's... Uh, it's it's a roller coaster with some pretty steep head, hills and valleys, so I was glad to see the cold, though, just to keep things from getting any, jumping the gun any too much, but I'm not at all sure that winter's really over
4: with.
2: Well, I needed to transplant some things anyway. I got a, an ash tree planted uh, that turned out to be not what I wanted, not uh, what we thought it was. It wasn't, uh, an, and I think this may be a fairly common problem. It wasn't the Texas ash. It mm-hmm. was it looks like it's a green ash you know it had no red yep. colors in the fall color at all and the leaves didn't droop a little bit like the uh, texas ash so we got it replaced with one that uh, looks like it's going to be a better way to go and i'm i've got a bunch of the uh, chinese photinia. Uh, i just wrote a column uh-huh. about it being a lot better than the Fraser photinia, the red tip and i'm going to transplant some of those so i needed a little continuing cold
0: i <laughs> uh, did you propagate yourself or where did you find your chinese photinia?
2: popping up in the yard
0: well that's Birds. uh that's that's a great thing that that is one of my favorite plants out there and uh you know it's it's not the perfect plant but boy there was an enormous one on the corner of my grandfather's home over in oak cliff there in dallas and uh it's got flowers, it's durable, it's drought-tolerant, it's just, you know, it, it's just a, another one of those plants on our list of why don't people grow more of this plants in the industry.
2: Yeah, I think it's a good one. I think it probably is a little bit like oak, so I think that they have a tendency to crossbreed pretty badly because, uh-huh. you know, the, the Chinese fotinia is fotinia seriolata, and... and ones that are for sure the right plant have really serrated oh. edges to the leaves no, but I perfectly. see some of them having pretty smooth edges like the red tip and that's probably how they came up with the red tips, they saw a little bit better color from them and, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe a smoother edge leaf and that's where it all came from i don't know
0: well years and years ago we won't talk about how many years ago when i was actually taking pla- plant taxonomy and all then this was long before the red tips uh, they had a one they call photinia glabra and sergulata was a chinese and i mean it was almost a sawtooth edged and the and the glabra was just kind of little indentations, and it wasn't as good as the uh, as the Ceruleta, but it sure wasn't as bad as the red tips. I, somehow, in, uh, in their selecting to get that brilliant spring color, they sure lost a lot of... Uh, Oh, a lot of the good qualities of it. That is one of the most disease resistant plants and just simply will not take any pruning. I I just have very little nice to say about red tips, but have very little bad to say about the Chinese photanias. So I'm well, cool. I don't
2: recommend them uh, to be planted anymore either. But I'm glad they were around because it's how I came up with the sick tree treatment,
6: <laughs> and, and,
2: uh, and it'll save them. It's still, you know, better to plant something that's going to be tougher. But if that's how the sick tree treatment came about—is me trying to figure out how to save the uh, the red tip.
0: Oh, that's a great story. You know, it's like I say about some people. Uh, did you ever think that your only purpose in life was to serve as a bad example? And I think that's exactly what the the red yeah. tips are.
2: Yep, that's exactly right. Hey, a couple of things I heard uh, you talk about that I may be able to throw a little uh, uh, help in. There is a, um, and this is something I've been meaning to look into more. Maybe you and I together can uh, make something happen. There's a line of products called Scram. Okay. And they, um, they were actually an advertiser of ours 10 years ago or more. It's from a company called Epic. And I thought they had gone away, and then one of my listeners told me that they had bought it online. I looked into it, and I looked into it in more detail this morning, and sure enough, it, the products are online, so they ought to be able to be uh, purchased, uh, you know, for sure. Y'all ought to look into handling it, and I, I'd rather have retail stores than having people have to right. order online. But they've got Gopher Scram mole scram, vole scram, armadillo scram, rabbit scram which I I knew about all those. They have uh-huh. dog and cat scram, they have deer scram, they have wild hog scram. Which wow, is very interesting. Yeah. They do not have possum and and uh
0: <laughs> raccoon.
2: Raccoon on the uh, on the website, but and I can't remember the owner's name. I I'm, I'm going to get it from Doug and try to Contact him, and y'all might ought to look into it oh. uh, as well, because they flat these products flat work, and they work from a completely different uh, standpoint. They don't stink,
6: uh-huh.
2: and they're organic. He's used all organic products. I assume it's the same company, same thing. I think it is because Epic was the name of the company we worked with.
0: Before. I'll be looking at it this afternoon.
2: He came up with the, uh, the concept of uh, doing a product that set up the fear of, of death, Fear of dying (laughs) rather than just smelling bad. Okay. And uh, we had some specific. I had several people have good luck with it, but the most uh, most impressive one was I was doing some consultation on a very large development in uh, the Atlanta area, Uh Georgia, and um, they had a deer problem, and they totally eliminated their deer problem with this stuff. So it's it's um, possibly uh, a real McCoy type thing for us to try to get back on the market.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Liquid or dry?
2: It's a dry, granulated product.
0: Very good.
2: And then the other thing, the azomite, I've had a little different experience with uh, azomite than you have. I've seen it have a better effect than anything I've ever used. You know, really? With the uh, lava sand and the other things. You know, comparing it to granite sand and green sand, which I got afraid of using some time ago because of the quality mm-hmm. concerns and the heavy metals
6: right arsenic yeah
2: the thing it does that's a little step above just most ground up rock is that there's organic matter in it and it really seems because of the blends seem to stimulate biological activity as well as anything i've ever used i used it on this new bed planting in my backyard that's asian jasmine Uh it almost completely covered in one growing season last year Yeah. you might uh, give it a, another look. I think it's um, – I'm even going to try to get some of the food-grade uh, product. I think it's a lot better way to go than than uh, diatomaceous earth because of the, the fact that the diatomaceous earth company also puts pyrethrum in some of their products. And I'm a That's crazy. Nervous yeah. That.
0: Well, as we've discussed, I think my problem is that my – vegetable garden where i've gardened for so many years the soil is so good yeah. already it's right. really hard to see a big change sure. I'm, i've created a whole bunch of new area this year so yeah azomite's one of the things along with some of the uh humates and things that i'm going to be looking at a lot more carefully and i may very well find exactly what you're talking about that starting off with a poorer soil to begin with it may produce just you know really good results the other thing that i love is that uh there is a, a form of it that comes uh molasses coated and yeah. i just i think that's just the best of both worlds get a little energy in there along with uh what like 95 different beneficial compounds i think they've identified in the azomite now it's i tried to take a picture of the sign at one of the last uh, um i went to one of the trade shows actually the adams trade show and had a long t- talk with the folks producing it and it's got a lot of amazing things in it
2: well that's one of my favorite uh, products and if you do the one that's got molasses in it that eliminates one of the other basic inputs in the organic program and the sick tree treatment and all that we recommend on, on hellebores mm-hmm. i'm looking out at the prettiest ones you've ever seen
0: <laughs> i thought you had mentioned that they were doing really well for you
2: yeah and this this is the first time they've done this well they're just gorgeous but uh, the only two i've ever grown and i get them from green lake nursery that's a you know Growing operation here in the Dallas area, uh-huh. and I've got a it's a purple reddish purple one and a white one. Those are the only two that that I have, and so there may maybe in the past when you've been playing around with them, the more exotic ones because you can get mm-hmm. them in any colors. Maybe oh they're goodness. not as tough as yep. as these uh, are, but well, to look into what the exact cultivar is that I'm getting, and that may be a good uh, tip for y'all. The only negative about them. You know, they're blooming in really cold weather, which is really cool. But they have to have shade. They cannot take any sun. They burn up. But uh, full shade all day long. And the only other negative about them is, I don't know what the horticultural term for this is. I should, but the the flowers dip.
0: Hmm, okay.
2: And so... they're got they've gotten so heavy with flowers yeah. now they look really pretty but when you're close to them and looking at them you got to kind of lift the fl- flower up <laughs> to look into the face <laughs> of it
0: uh, it's uh well we we'll, we'll very definitely give them a try again it's been uh, so many years and you just don't see them in the nurseries anywhere here, but Seattle is just so much fun. We had reason to go to the gift show, and we wanted to visit some nurseries, just looking at some different ideas on some different things. And, boy, I, Seattle just has one good nursery after the other compared to Atlanta, which you just mentioned that, you know, we've looked and looked and looked and can't find one nursery that I would really call a good organic based nursery in the whole Atlanta area but uh, we went to like eight or ten different ones in Seattle and uh, some of them very large some of them very small but golly the, they have a real gardening ethic up there and the hellebores and there's so many different kinds I you'd hardly know where to start but we'll have to we'll have to look at that and just compare notes and see which ones do best for us.
2: Well, however they came up with the one we've got here, it, it's um, it's a keeper. And they've been in place for several years, so they have some durability, too.
0: Oh, very good. Uh, I
2: give them a shot.
0: Uh, most definitely. Most definitely. But, uh, yeah, it was, and it was an interesting trip. My biggest objection to most of the nurseries up there is so many of them have uh, almost 100% organic products on the shelf, but they see nothing wrong with incorporating uh canadian peat moss in in all their soils and things like that and i just don't like canadian peat moss but sitting up there on the border i guess it's convenient and cheap for them
2: well that's the that's the you know situation across the country it's just a, this paradigm is so powerful you know people use yep. pine bark and and peat moss is the base, and the reason is they're using synthetic fertilizers and not feeding the soil. All the yeah. all those materials are doing are, is holding up the plant, and they like it because it's light, yeah. lightweight. Yeah, and uh, that's yeah. Uh, well, and it's just what they learned in college. You know, we still don't. That's why yeah. we did the online. Uh, uh, course that we've got through Texas Organic Research Center is, is still today. There is no complete curriculum in the country that I know of that teaches uh, organic gardening, farming, ranching, golf course management, or any of
0: that. Well, it's what makes that course so valuable. We have a couple of new employees that have uh, been with us long enough to really embrace the organic philosophy, and uh, probably next week we'll be getting them signed up for the organic uh, course with you guys, and, and they ask us about it. We talked about this probably a month ago. We told them we were going to give them that opportunity, and we've just been this is our season of running back and forth the gift sure. markets, which is past now, but it's every time I see one of them it says, when do I get to sign up for Howard's course? And I said, just let us get back in down so it really is a great thing and uh, I don't know we've recommended it to so many people and uh, just continue to do so because it's got more information in uh, you know a dozen sessions than people are going to get in four years of college most places.
2: Well I wish it would change but I don't see any evidence of it. I There's a, another radio show you know in this market here that's my competitor <laughs> and he has a guy, A and M fruit and pecan guy, on every year, and I, I try to listen to, force myself to listen to a little of it to see if there's any advancement in thinking there. Yeah, and uh, you know what the answer is.
0: Well, that's unfortunately. I, I do have to say though, our uh, I, I can't even call him a competitor because our ratings are yeah. just on the oh, different true. ends of the scale, but uh, he is starting to recommend more organic products and that's not the official a&m line not the official extension service line but i actually hear him you know talking about uh using organics in a number of different places which uh which you know is an encouraging sign but i i tell you my my latest people that I'm so discouraged with are the Texas, and I don't know how they got them to change the name. When did it have to go from being the Texas Forest Service to the Texas A&M Forest Service? And, uh, I don't know that. I just, but, you know, they the, one of these days they're going to have to wake up and acknowledge the fact now that it is in a lot of literature that uh, plants do have an immune system of sorts and that there are different things we can Use that don't have to come out of a can or a bottle that's uh, was was synthetically made. But anyway, don't get me started on that subject. Other thing I wanted to ask you about is because I have virtually no experience in them yet. But have you looked at or used any of the new LED plant lights out there? Um, they they look like they have great potential, and they seem to put out a lot of light in the light end of the spe- in the right end of the spectrum, the blue end. But I just I have no experience with them yet.
2: I really don't either i've always just told people and uh, used myself just the brightest lights I can get and yep. think about lumens but uh whatever works and is uh, you know inexpensive to run so that sounds like a like a good thing to Learn more about.
0: Well, it's it's one of those things we need to know because, and, and and we've talked about this on the air. I'm just I'm astounded at how many young people are interested in getting into gardening. It's just totally the opposite of what Charlie Hall and all those quote experts, Ray and M, said. They said, oh yeah, this upcoming generation, they're not going to be interested in plants and they're going to buy everything on their computer. And boy, nothing could be further from the truth. But we have so many new friends and customers that are gardening indoors or gardening in apartments and places where they don't have a lot of natural light and are looking for ways to enhance that light and so uh time time for me to go back to school and and see what I can learn about LEDs and I'll sure share with you what I learned.
2: Yeah, absolutely yeah, that's great well, I'm I'm glad that's the uh, that's the case. It probably has a little bit to do with the fact that y'all have the the greatest <laughs> retail store in the country. Uh, and that, you know, those kind of things don't exist like that so much around the rest of the United States. They tend to put the organic stuff back in a corner somewhere, and they get dusty and they're too expensive. But when you concentrate on organics like Shades of Green does. You know, it's just it works for the customers a whole lot better, and you get more people involved.
0: Well, you're very kind, and that's that's our philosophy. And of course, we just we're out there to provide information. So many nurseries they just want to stick it on the shelf and let it sell itself. And uh, people are are thirsty for knowledge. People, there's just I don't know. It's just one of the most fun things. And I, I expect the attendance at our seminar is probably going to be up this spring because we've got so many people anxious to learn. And um, that's that's just what makes it fun is being able to answer the questions and be able to help people and steer them your way and, you know, just do everything we can. And And we constantly fight. Everybody wants to go to the Internet, especially this younger generation. And we just have to say, you know, recognize that 95% of what's on there is written for a different part of the country, and unless you're on DirtDoctor.com, you're probably getting the wrong information.
2: Well, I look forward to getting together again. i got a, a new idea to run by that might be a project we could work on together. So several several things we uh, need to do. And so
0: well, Yeah, we do. Out. I think we're probably looking at... Uh, um getting a past our super super busy season, so we 'll have a little bit more free time to get you down here for a seminar and art show and all the all the fun things we 've talked about so that 's very definitely on our agenda as well but uh oh, I look forward to just visiting with you. Oh. Over that old-fashioned instrument, they call the telephone sometime <laughs> in the not-too-distant future. And uh, Chris tells me that Tater was in good voice this morning, so I trust all your all your four-legged family members are doing well.
2: Well, he's right here leaning against me, saying hi to everybody. And uh, <laughs> I got him to myself. Judy's going to hit the road here, so uh, they were in here being part of the team this morning. Oh, well, very we'll good. You, we'll see you guys next week. I've enjoyed it, as always. And... Uh, well, uh, you know, if anybody's got any questions in the meantime, they can always shoot me a question on DirtDoctor.com. At
0: info at DirtDoctor.com. And, Howard, we appreciate you. You, you give the pups a pet for us. And, uh, again, thanks for everything, and I'll look forward to talking soon. Thanks. And Thank and you, see you, sir. next week. Okay, bye. bye. This Harry Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. Dirtdoctor.com is the, uh, is the website we talk about where there is just a wealth of information. And if you want to receive a certification, uh, an organic certification, look at uh, the online courses that he actually offers. Uh, they spend a lot of money in putting these things together, so there is a charge for the online organic course. But, man, you're going to come away with a wealth of knowledge if uh, you go through that. And just when you start, trying to research something, check check DirtDoctor.com first because there's just so much information elsewhere and I'm not going to say it's bad information but it's just not applicable to this part of the country and uh, the northeast, the midwest, especially uh, northeast where so much of this gardening information comes from, they just are in a totally different world so beware the internet but you can trust DirtDoctor.com I guess is about the best way to put it. All right, well, you can quit dialing because all those lines are full. It's going to be Sherry and Danny and Chris and Robert. And uh, and let me take just one more opportunity right now because I know people have us join us and uh, have other things to do, come and go, as it were, on Saturdays. But I want to remind you that next Saturday is our first free seminar of the spring seminar season, 930 uh, over at Shades of Green and uh, actually about 945 um, and it will be just everything you ever wanted to know about pruning 945. And uh, you don't sign up, you just show up. Uh, coffee will be on by nine. So get there by 930. If you want to get a good seat, we start about 945. And I'm going to talk about the theory behind pruning and then actually demonstrate uh, on whether it's uh, overgrown shrubs, whether it's brand-new shrubs you're just planting, or trees, or all those ones that are kind of that happy place in the middle. Anyway, that's next Saturday morning, 945, and love to have you join us. Right now, let's get back to the phone calls. Good morning, Sherry. Good
9: morning. How are you?
0: I'm well. How are you this morning?
9: I am wonderful. I just want to tell you thank you for your show. My daddy has listened to you for years. We've gotten gotten tremendous amounts of tips from you, and you're so appreciated. (laughs)
0: Well, I do thank you for that. It's a great deal of pleasure talking to people like you.
9: Well, um, I live in Nolanville, Texas, which is right outside Killeen, so Uh we're right in in the middle of central Texas, I guess you could say. Right. My husband and I are going to plant an in-ground garden this year.
6: Very good. We have
9: done um, a potted garden before um, in pots, and it did well but we'd like to do it in ground this year and two questions for you, sir. Um, we would like to go all organic.
0: Very good. Um,
9: what would be your best suggestion for us to prepare that soil? And then my next question would be, how can we be proactive to prevent bugs, mites, and rot, um, in an organic way?
0: Very, very good questions. Um, So you have reasonably good soil to start with, uh, or at least it's just deep soil and it's somewhat loamy soil, or is it black clay?
9: Well, it's it's got a great combination of clay in with it, to okay. be honest with okay. you.
0: Okay. Well, you know, there are some basic things, and um, then there are, you know, a lot of things that you can do to just bring it up from good to great to really premium level. Um, the two things that are the basic starting point, in my opinion, are compost and a good organic fertilizer and that's sort of the minimum and those two things alone will get you off to a good start other things Mm -hmm. that will make your soil a lot better and if you want to see all this written down just go to dirtdoctor.com and his soil preparation formula but i Mm -hmm. like you know i very much like dry molasses i think dry molasses it's an energy source that stimulates the microbes in the soil the life in the soil and that's what really good soil is about so Uh, Molasses, either in the dry form, which is easy, or the liquid form, which is a little bit cheaper, that you can just spray over the area pretty much on a monthly basis. Um, Next thing that I would tell you will really help get things off to a good start is a bit of whole ground cornmeal, because it takes out, it will stimulate your plants in a way that helps them ward off uh, most fungal disease problems. So just a good dusting of whole ground cornmeal on the surface of the soil. And then beyond that, there is this mineral called azomite, which is just a great addition to soil preparation. Humates, we are learning more and more about the benefit of humates. Companies like Medina put a lot of uh, humate into their fertilizers, but you can also get dry humate you can get it fairly coarsely ground or fairly finely ground but uh dry humate is an excellent addition to make your soil better um lava sand if you have a problem with your soil holding moisture incorporating some mm-hmm. lava sand is a good thing to do and beyond that okay. if you can find a good green sand this just is bringing in uh you know a good source of iron and some other minerals um which would you know also be a a good way to get your soil with a real good texture and the the thing about so many of these things especially like your azomite like your lava um like your uh, your uh humate products is they we they do something we call cation exchange uh and one of the things that makes organic fertilizer so good is that they are cation based it means their most of the nutrients are in a form that uh has a um, has a an electrical charge to it so to speak so that they are mm-hmm. stay in the soil. They have a positive charge. They're attracted to the cathode. That's why they're called cations. But then when we start adding, you've already got clays to begin with, which serve with cation exchange. But then when you add things like your lava and your humates, It's just not one particle of fertilizer is wasted. Anything the plants don't need today, these things bind to our cation exchange agents in the soil, and they stay there until the plants need them, which makes your fertilizer so much more efficient. And it also keeps there from being the issues with pollution that we have with so many of the synthetic fertilizers are anion-based, and probably 90% of it washes away. So the more you do to build your soil, the better it's going to be long-term. The other thing that we have learned, and I'm going to be talking about this in next week's seminar, is that when we increase the sugar content – of the sap in the plants. And we do that with molasses. We do that with humates, uh, with a number of things. It's called the BRICS, B-R-I-X. And if you Google BRICS sometime and read about it, we're finding that the more we do to raise the BRICS level, the less attractive we make our crops to insects. And uh, there's just, there's just a lot of knowledge out there. And uh, um we just continue to learn there's so much new science out there all the time so that in a nutshell <laughs> i hope that at just gives you a few things to look at when you're getting your new garden started
9: no it absolutely gives me great great feedback so that i can um, get this rolling <laughs> in the right way so this is um wonderful thank you so much
0: well it's my pleasure you check in with me and let me know how you're doing on it sherry
9: I certainly will. Mm. have a wonderful afternoon.
0: You do the same. Thank you.
9: Uh-huh.
0: Bye. All right. Danny's up next. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, just a wonderful day out there. I'm great. How about you? Oh, good. Um, I have
14: a question. I started, well, a few questions. I started last year with a raised garden. Uh-huh. And I think I had talked to you and you had told me to, to start with some compost, new earth and that. So I got a truckload of it and we filled the boxes. What do I have to do to amend that same compost, or do I have to remove part of it for this year?
0: You don't really need to remove anything, and the main thing you need to add, I would add two things to begin with. I would add just a good organic fertilizer, Medina or Nature's Creation or Meister Grow. There are a bunch of good organic fertilizers out there. And I I think that a little bit of cornmeal, I think a little bit of molasses is always a good addition, but just like my previous caller, if you want to add other things like Azomite, uh, like lava sand, like green sand, like uh, the dry humates, those things are all very good. But your basic starting point is just going to be with a good organic fertilizer, and I think molasses is going to be number two on my list. And probably number three is incorporate a small amount of whole-ground cornmeal because of all the diseases it prevents.
14: Okay. Um, Would it be premature to start that
0: now? Not at all. Not at all. I think it's a little premature to plant some things, but, you know, we're right on the verge of planting potatoes and a lot of cool weather things can still go in. On warm weather things, I love to get my soil preparation done three or four weeks in advance of the actual planting just because it mellows the soil out These uh, the nutrients and things they don't go directly from the bag into the plants. They have to be acted upon by microbes in the soil. So it is absolutely not too early to start your soil preparation. It's a great time to do that. Okay, and um, when would I put? I can't remember the name
14: of those. They they come in a sponge. Um, Beneficial nematodes. There you go. You know, I, I put those in.
0: I, that's something else you can do right now. In most cases, with the beneficial nematodes, I'm reactive. I'm going to put them out when I see a problem, or when I when I see you know June bugs, when I see fleas show up. But early spring, I like to make an application to just kind of head off to get rid of any overwintering larvae in the soil to get rid of things like uh, thrips larvae in the soil to get rid of any ticks that may be down at ground level so that's another thing i would do with your bed preparation and then beyond that i don't worry about using them unless i have a problem
14: okay now um what about like red potatoes and that i can start right now with those (laughs) or red potatoes even good for
0: the area oh red potatoes are outstanding for this area here's the thing about potatoes they can freeze back and they will still come out and grow again um and i you know it's one of those things you plant a tomato plant it freezes it's done you start all over you plant your potatoes a little early if they come up they start growing they freeze down they come right back up again so I'm not big on January planting of potatoes, but mid-February, I think, is the time to get them in the ground. So, yeah, I'll be planting my potatoes probably within the next uh, week if I've got time to get out and do it. So, I think it's just fine to get started with red potatoes. and. They are, I think, the best thing you're going to put out there in the way of potatoes. I love red potatoes, and, and they don't really ripen. You can start picking new potatoes about six weeks after you plant your seed potato pieces, or you can wait till summertime, leave them on there, and, you know, get really fairly good size. But about six weeks into it, you can take your finger and start probing around the base of those plants and start picking out little golf ball-sized new potatoes. You're making me hungry just thinking about it.
14: <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um
0: now, what is your opinion on planting marigolds in your vegetable garden? If you like spider mites, plant marigolds. Uh, okay. They bring in far more problems than they solve. Uh, that's okay. something they do in other parts of the country where they don't have such spider mite issues, but I do not recommend marigolds in the garden.
14: Okay, and I am looking at going to panics to get that. Fruit uh, cocktail tree or fruit salad tree, (laughs) yeah, and and avocados. Okay, when would be a good time to get those? And do I put them in the ground, uh, or do I leave them in pots
12: for a while? It's uh,
0: it's a good question. Best time is always five years ago, but second best time is today. Um, The the so called fruit cocktail trees. Uh, To me, they're a little gimmicky, but they are kind of fun. And, yes, you can go ahead and plant them in the ground. With avocados, the varieties you'll find at FanX, once they are established, they are cold hardy. But it may take a couple of years for them to become established and to start developing that rough bark. So I would not put avocados in the ground unless you'll be able to cover and protect them if we get another fairly hard freeze and that's always a possibility but uh, um, so go ahead and get them if you like but I'd leave them in the container so that you can bring them in size because once they get the rough bark they're going to be cold hardy but uh, you know the first year or two while they still have that smooth bark you're going to have to protect them if it gets really cold.
14: Do you carry uh, a plant you had last year,
0: and it's a it's a spinach. It's a purple spinach, uh-huh. it was a vining spinach. Yeah, that, I it's, really love that. Yeah, it's too early for that. They call that Malabar spinach. Uh, yes, we will have lots of it, but you're probably four to six weeks away from that being really time to plant that.
14: Okay. All righty. Well, I'll have to make another trip to your nursery. I went and bought <laughs> cabbage and broccoli and... All kinds of stuff. Just come
0: wander through when you're in the area. It's a pretty place to look around, and you never have to buy anything to be welcome, Danny.
14: So It we'll, definitely is. I just have to make sure my bank account is up there before <laughs> I go in <into> there. <laughs> my wife goes
0: crazy. That's, that's not a bad thing. Good morning, Chris.
1: Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I have to talk really, really fast because the commercials are running really, really fast. So we only have a short amount of time.
3: There you however, go.
1: I have planted, However, I planted tomatoes in the fall just to do it. They came up, of course, they froze down, but I was able to get about four pounds of really nice size red potatoes out of it, which I'll plant again anyway. Good. That's just for the guy who asked for that. Malabar spinach, for me, grows up every year by itself. It, mm-hmm. It'll go to the seed and all that. I'll pick that and, and I have an area, and it just grows along the fence. That's good. My question is, tomatoes, I started plant. Uh, I'm doing the, what am I doing? I have a, a heating mat and that the, and LEDs. They're just not seeming to do what I think they should do.
0: Okay, that, so I'm
1: wanting your opinion on that. It's got a mat. I'm using good soil. I'm using uh, fresh seed, and they're coming up, but they don't look. You out, know what I'm talking about? Like Yeah, you get they don't look
0: thrifty. Is is the word that gardeners have always used? Um, how close to the plants are your LED lights?
1: Uh, four inches.
0: Okay, well you're doing okay and there. I
1: have the red. And, Yeah, I'm doing the red and blue, and I also... It's a daylight LED, and then I put the red and blue little strips you can buy.
0: Well, forget about the red. Forget about the red. Red has nothing to do with growth. Uh, Blue is the only thing that's going to influence growth. Red influences flowering, but blue is the wavelength for growth. So increase that if you can, and... uh, I mean red's yeah, not hurting yeah. anything, but it's not helping anything. Um I would be giving them a bit of foliar feed along with, you know, a you know, good liquid feed periodically and um right. You know, warm warm temperatures that uh propagating mat is a real good thing to have them on. But uh, And if there's any way you can get them any natural light, I mean, the LEDs are good, but nothing replaces the sun's energy. So, right. Uh, I
1: think about during the day, if, unless, you know, like this week it was 28 degrees in my house. Right. So <laughs> I couldn't take them out in the morning, so a couple of days didn't. But if it's going to be warm, like if today ended up sunny like yesterday, I would have brought them
0: outside and laid them out, sure. you know, so they can get direct sun. But Well, keep them out okay. of the wind, and long term you may want to think about doing... You know what we call a coal frame, which is a great way to get them started but uh the the light is the most important thing. the nutrients are the most important thing, and then and they just the need some yeah they they just need some time but uh when you put them out, be sure they're not in the wind that will dehydrate them badly, but uh we need some more seventy degree days to get them to looking really good. Remember <laughs> that the seedlings that you buy. Uh, they're sitting in a 70-degree greenhouse and have been for quite some time with full natural sunlight. So it's going to take a little while for your seedlings to catch up. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for everybody. Well, very good. I appreciate the call. Uh, Looks like Robert actually dropped off. So I'm left with about three minutes here just to tell you about a few things that I think you'd like to know about um, first of all, it's, we are coming right up on time to plant potatoes. It is certainly time to continue planting onions. We've got at least another couple of weeks of good onion planting time. And if you've not tried growing onions, you really need to. The people I share onions with tell me that they're the best thing that comes out of my garden. This is people like Dr. Kirby and my business partner. So uh if you if you're gardening and you want a crop that you just can't miss with, get out and get some onion plants. Not the little so called sets, not the bulbs. You want to buy that little bundle with about a hundred plants in it for a couple of bucks and uh, get them in the ground. I'm I'm gonna be planting potatoes like I was explaining earlier. Uh, the thing about potatoes is that they can freeze back. If you plant them too early and then we get a late freeze, they'll freeze down, but they will come back. Now, after about three freezing downs, that's going to be a different story. But uh, I usually plant in mid-February, occasionally to get a little frost, but I seem to always get a good crop of potatoes. So that's something else I would sure be looking at. It is way too early to think about putting Uh, tomatoes, and especially things like peppers and eggplants, which are really warm weather plants, way too early to think about putting those things in the ground. But if you want to put them in bigger pots, if you have a bright place, then you want to grow them up to a bigger size before you put them in the ground, by all means, do so. Now, some things do not transplant well. I find that beans and black-eyed peas and things like that simply don't transplant well. So... uh, just wait. Direct seed those into the ground a little bit later. If you want to start some squash and some cucumbers, yeah, probably about time to get that seed started because hopefully by the early March we will be feel good about putting those things out in the ground. But it is really time to get that soil ready. Go ahead and get your fertilizer out in your vegetable garden. If you haven't fed your landscape in the last three months, really good time to get some uh, good organic fertilizer on. Uh, it just takes a little time for the plants to use it. You need to get it out so the plants will be able to process it and be ready for that spring burst of growth. that's going to be coming up in, <laughs> in the very new future. I'm not going to tell you exactly when.